right, Travis, got a question for you. I had this uh, conversation with a coach recently. And with the emphasis of getting the ball in the air over the course of the last five years, do you think that combined with controlled cage settings, which is usually front toss, so our controlled cage setting I would define as lack of velocity on a pitch. So the emphasis of getting the ball in the air, lack of velocity in a training setting has led to the epidemic, I'll call it now, of barrel dumping by giving hitters a false sense of security and satisfaction of I'm achieving the goal in this controlled setting, albeit once I get into a competitive environment, I get blown up. So do you think the way that most people have trained in the majority has caused the plethora of barrel dumpers? Um, I think there's, I think there's probably two points in there. I would say point number one, I, I think, you know, there's still the issue of you're, you're probably getting some uneducated thoughts because they hear, you know, parents or whoever hears certain terms, they don't quite understand, you know, whether it be launch angle or get the ball in the air or whatever else it ends up being, you know, that I think you get people that get misconceptions that they just need to get under the ball, which probably is going to lead, you know, the common person more to a barrel dump because they're just trying to get depth under the ball to get it back up in the air. And obviously a slower pitch allows that to happen. Plus a slower pitch is going to, um, so knowing that a slower pitch is going to have a greater arc on the way down, the line going up is going to be a little bit more extreme anyways, run a pitch that's, let's say, you know, seven, eight degrees, you're gonna have a less line if you're behind the ball anyways, than you would on something that's going to be dropping more. Um, I think, you know, going back to all of it, you know, growing up when we would go and play home run derby, I mean, I wasn't trying to hit ground balls. I wasn't trying to hit, you know, line drives through the shortstop. I was trying to hit a ball in the air as far as I could. But I also realized like in a game that a lot of that was unrealistic because even when we played home run derby, you know, if your friends threw too firm in home run derby, you would tell them to slow it down because you wanted a big old leg kick and you wanted this big bat sweep. And I think, you know, even without thinking about it as a kid, you knew that you couldn't pull that off in a game. Like I couldn't have that leg kick in a game because my leg kick, I might've hung for, I might've hung for 15 seconds and I might've over rotated, you know, 40 degrees and like, I knew I couldn't pull it off in the game. That doesn't mean I wasn't trying to hit balls hard in the game and trying to, you know, to do damage. I think, you know, the biggest thing, like for me, when I think about that is, again, I think you get, you get certain people that probably jump on an idea without understanding what, why the idea has come into culture. Like it came into culture because you can now go and pull up every single batted ball in play in the big leagues. And you could say any ball hit over 12 degrees that is 90 plus is 97% hit. 
hit rate or whatever ends up being the number. It's exceedingly yeah, that high. Is, that is, that's, you're really close to the number. I, I pulled this up uh, on – I might be off by 20 points or 10 points or so, but I'm going to be close. Of various hits in the big leagues, all at 100 miles an hour with different launch angles. And at 10 degrees, the batting average for 10-degree hit at 100 miles an hour is like 968, right? Like, the only way that a player is getting out then I'm, I'm thinking is probably the the second baseman in uh, short right field probably catching line drives there once in a while but yeah it's uh, it's it's astronomical if you hit the ball on the line you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to get a hit if you hit it hard yeah so I mean again you look at that and you go we see those numbers and you could see like obviously how those numbers change to eventually pretty close to 100 percent once you get to 100 at 25 degrees or whatever it ends up being but you're then taking youth kids and you're saying hey you can't hit a ball 100 but let's keep trying to like get this ball in the air and there's a certain point where when you don't have that exit speed hitting the ball in the air doesn't do you doesn't do you justice and getting the ball higher up without exit speed is just basically a guaranteed out and I think you know, people started looking at that and that's why, you know, I think analytics always gets the, gets the crap end of, you know, a lot of people's conversations is that you take something like that where we can tell you, listen, man, all you got to do is get a ball on flight somewhere over basically infield at a relatively good rate of speed and you're going to get a hit. And then it becomes, oh, you're trying to get the ball in the air. And then that means, oh, well, let's get the ball in the air. Like, let's get it up there. You know what I mean? Like, so I think there's, I think there's misconceptions. So I think, you know, part of that is, you know, also the, the strategy and understanding of whoever is parlaying this information to the kids, whether it's us through social media. And I say us, I mean, coaches, not just elite, um, but coaches through social media or parents giving the information to the kids or other coaches during practice or whatever ends up being the case. It's, eventually comes down to how does that information get disseminated yeah, that's what i was thinking like context is everything right yeah so i mean that's a huge part of it and i think you know it's just it's important then you know that people use a little bit of their own intelligence when they're intaking information you know like are we telling you to just hey tip your body and just try to drive this ball as high as you can up or we take your bat and you know scrape the ground and then get it up and try to drive balls up or are we simply saying just logistically, if a ball is coming down at eight degrees and we're going up at eight degrees and we square it slightly under center, it's going to go up at a higher degree than eight degrees. Well, there's your 10 degrees. There's your 12 degrees. It's not trying to get so much depth under the ball that we're fighting to get back up to it. And then we're clipping a bunch of balls. And then the balls that we do square, if we don't have the right exit speed are just going to be, you know, mid to deep fly balls. So I think that's part of it. And I think, yeah, I, you know, you probably got a big part of the, the dump under culture, but I would also say that going back to another conversation we had before, I still feel like most kids, especially are one posture swingers and they land in the same posture, no matter the pitch height. Most pitchers are taught at a young age to still throw the ball down, not up. So you're not getting most youth kids aren't like, going to the big league level yet where they're trying to throw high fastball spin rate up in the zone also because they don't have the breaking ball to throw down in the zone with it. 
So they're taught to throw the ball still down in the zone. So if I land in a high posture, the only way to get there is to dump my barrel and try to race to get down behind it before the ball gets by me or to basically just shoot the bat down and just bang the ball straight in the dirt. So I think, you know, for a lot of kids when they're thinking, hey, I got to get this ball over the infield, can't get it over the infield going this way. So my thoughts got to be if I'm in a tall posture, that barrel's got to race that way to try to get behind it before the ball gets past me. So I think there's a little bit of both in there. It's a good question. So my next, here's where I'm going with this, is soft toss, front toss, bad? Um, That's a jaded question a little bit, but I know you and I have gone to way more. You can sit on a bucket or you can, uh, I, I tend to throw for my knees, but instead of doing front toss underhand, we do a lot more overhand flat toss and, and a little firmer. I stopped doing underhand flips probably two and a half years ago two years ago, two and a half years ago, for the same reason. It was like, I'm sitting here thinking about the logistics of a couple of things. Like my, mine wasn't even initially because I could do a firm, I could do a firm underhand flip. Like that's not an issue, but in my mind, a lot of it was just like the sight line that a kid is watching through. And obviously the ball flight is going to change if I'm throwing the ball this way, whether I'm throwing it underhand up, down, but like the sight line, if my hand is low and a kid is always looking down at my hand, which is closer to my knee. Um, and then they're swinging that way versus now when the pitch comes and their body's got to be more upright looking out was part of the big reason I went to initially to overhand uh, short, as I'd call it, short toss. Um, yeah, I think I saw you doing it and just copied it. I think I was like, wow, that makes so much sense. Why am I, why am I doing underhand toss? Especially with, you know, the people we, well, people we were working with a lot at that time were – uh, professional players like well you know I need to find a way to get this ball up in the zone I'm gonna be able to do that better from an overhand position than an underhand position but how much of that is just how much of the underhand is just like the the history of how development has come along because you're getting a lot of times older coaches let's say who maybe their arms aren't moving quite as well as they used to and for them to sit and have to go overhand all the time and throw is probably more difficult it's easy just kind of flip underhand you get a lot of parents who can't do probably very accurate overhand for any kind of distance whatsoever. So for them, underhand is probably easier. So I think it just became this, like, this is how we trained. Like, oh, I took this underhand flip. Because even then, like, most of our – I mean, I don't know about you, I guess, but, like, you know, my dad didn't throw a ton of BP. Like, we would go and hit off a machine or whatever. But, like, when, when my dad would throw, it wouldn't be even from the front. It would be, like, those underhand side flips. You know, he'd stand across. Yeah, I, would side toss. I never did front toss till I got to college. Yeah, I did side, my parents would do side toss. And again, right. I had a cage in my yard and my mom threw very good BP all the way till I, I finished my career. My dad, not so much. I used to, to cuss at my dad. Looking back on that, it's kind of mean, but I was like, God damn it, dad. Do I need to get mom out here to throw? <laughs> You're so bad. <laughs> That'd piss wow. him off and he'd get, he got a little better eventually. But yeah, I, did, I, I never did front toss until I, I got to college. Yeah, so I think that plays a part in it, too. I think it's just been such commonplace to just, oh, now we go from T to underhand flip to eventually overhand. And that's, like, the progression of growing up. It's T, which is really easy, then, like, underhand, which is, well, that's got to be easy. And then, oh, now let's go overhand. And I think, I think you know, all that stuff plays a part in how kids develop. And, you know, we've, we've made mistakes. And I think, you know, not that, not that underhand is going to ruin a kid. I mean, underhand's work for a bunch of generations before us, I guess a little bit, but I think for the, like just training overall, what we're trying to accomplish, keeping it as game-like as possible, obviously overhand would make more sense in that, in that realm. 
Okay, so let's go to the other end of this because controlled toss does have its place still. Like in my mind, in anybody that's heard me talk, I've said this on infield play as well as um, hitting, you work slow and close before you work far and fast because as you add distance and velocity, everything becomes harder. So when do we institute velocity? Because, you know, if you just say, well, slow, bad, fast, good, the game plays at a fast speed, I might as well just train it fast. And that is more the test in what, what are your feelings of when we should actually institute velocity and that test? Should I do it right um, away? I, I do like, so I would typically say in, in, in a setting where I start with a kid. So like the first time I had a kid, and I think I, we probably covered this a little bit. Um, I probably talked about this on a different episode, but I like to do the first day, just like interview ask them, you know, why they're here, what's been going on, where do they feel like their strengths and weaknesses are, yada, yada, yada. And then I like to go typically into a throw. So I'm like, hey, let's just, let me, let me throw you right away. Just kind of see like, how, how do you hit currently before we start to make changes? This is obviously like assessment, all the yada, yada, yada stuff. But, um, and then I'll let them hit. And if they're barreling the ball, I'll just keep increasing the speed until their consistency drops. And then I'll kind of know, okay, at, at about this speed, you know, in your reaction time, this is where you start to change either your, your swing pattern or you start to panic or you start to make worse decisions that pitches you're going to swing at or whatever ends up being the case. And then we'll kind of start making corrections from there. So as I go then, as, as time progresses, I would say probably for me, I would say probably every other, every other session, we will have an over velo day. And we do it kind of just as like, I always call it like a heat check. Like, hey, you've been squaring up some balls. You've been moving a little bit better here. You've been cutting some of that extra space out of your swing or extra depth out of your swing. You know, let's see where we're at. And, you know, I had, heck man, I had a kid. <laughs> I had a kid the other day, turned on the uh, pitch machine, um, set it at 90. The kid's 13. Um, and the kid, kid's got a pretty good swing. Like he's, he's, pretty good mover when it comes to path like he's just the same kid it's in my hitting class on on the weekends i'm not sure six foot two 13 year old no no not no not that guy this guy's a switch hitting 13 year old and um but i turned it up to 90 and i was like listen like i'm not expecting you to just sit here and barrel these balls but let's just see where you're at like let's see what you feel like let's see if you can stay relaxed let's see if you can you know get your barrel to even like foul some of these balls off or whatever I said, we're using this as a heat check because part of that is then going to be like, hey, let's have a conversation after and be like, hey, what do you feel like you'd still need to do better to catch up to this? Knowing that at 13, he's not going to see 90 probably for another four, four to five years, depending on, you know, what his high school layout looks like or, you know, how high level of a travel team he's on. But I'm like, you're not going to see it for that long. So I don't expect you to hit it, but let's just let's see what you look like against it. And then let's have a talk about how you felt. And that way we can keep planning on, hey, what do we need to keep focusing on a little bit in our sessions based on what you're feeling? Like, man, I just feel like I feel like I don't have time or I feel like I couldn't get going quick enough or I feel like, you know, I panicked too much. And then, then it starts another conversation about, OK, um, so honestly, like I I won't sit and do it for a whole session unless a kid's ready for like, hey, like this is where you need to be like you're this is the level you're at. This is where you need to be. We need to be at this speed. And even then, like, you know, it's that, it's that little bit of like, do we, do we build a little confidence today or do we be realistic yeah. in what's going on? Right. So 
every kid's obviously different, as you know, like even every, every pro guy you work with is different. Like they're all going to need a little bit of different, like in this moment, do I need to just force you out of your comfort zone and find a way through this? Or do I need to pull back a little bit and let you keep your confidence and kind of just implement this a little bit slower? Yeah, I like, I still go slow with younger kids first because I feel like the biggest thing that they lack uh, in terms of hitting is body control. And I think back even to when I was like 11 years old, I had a pitching machine, the old iron mic, had it, had it in my yard. And my brother was six years older than me. So when I was 11 and in Little League, he was a senior in high school. So he would have the pitch machine and all of his friends on, like it was just like the place where anybody played baseball just hung out at my house in the summertime and we just hit all day. But they weren't going to like lower the speed of the machine when, when I jumped in the cage. And of course I wanted to be able to keep up with them. So at 11, I was hitting the machine at like one of its fastest speeds. So let's say, and it was about 60 feet away. So let's say it was 85 miles an hour and I could hit it and I could hit line drives off of it. However, I would go to my little league game that night and I was so bad of anybody that threw under hitting speed. I mean, so bad jumping to my front leg, I uh, had no body control, lunging, hands coming with me. And I would get so frustrated because I could hit really fast pitching and I couldn't hit, which was like, what, one or two pitchers in the league that actually throw hard when you're in a small town. And 15 of them that I was facing on a regular basis, who I was a much better athlete, they, they would get me out because I couldn't stay back on a slow pitch. So I think back to like body control being an issue and I want to teach, I would consider body control, just being a better mover. Um, I would, I'll teach the movement before I bring on the velocity. So with youth, with youth kids, then do you feel like it's important to have days where you just intentionally throw slow? Not, not even as I like do. a, hey, this is an option. I, I do that. I do that with pro guys too, at times. Um, I, I, I think the variant when you know anytime you go to the polar extremes of velocity it gets really hard so and i do think you need to to train both and they as you said everybody is different so some guys you're you're gonna float more often one way than the other but i, I certainly think it has its place so with let's say then let's take it the other way from what you asked me and you dealing obviously with pro players more regularly than anything else um how often do you feel like they need to use let's say either a machine or be facing something live versus just like a controlled bp or whatever their prep t or whatever their other work is like do they every day need to be facing something that's game speed like because that's the speed they already face on a daily basis i do believe that yeah like we in cage work with professional hitters on a daily basis let's say you're out at, at camp um, they'll still do routines. We'll still, you know, there'll be some slow controlled work, but I would say in the course of a day, that is less than 20% of the work. And then it gets, I believe in challenge practice. So practice is very difficult. And if it's on a field, it's even more difficult at it's game speed. So it's oftentimes high spin rate, really fast pitching, changes of velocity, changes in sight. But um, I, I am not a believer for the guys that have to compete at the very, very highest level that um, anything but challenge BP is actually helping them. Okay. That makes sense. 
I recall back to the, you know, the, the talking about the barrel dump. Um, the very first time I put my daughter on a tee, she was probably five, maybe four. And all I did, the only instruction I gave her was showing her how to stand, like get an athletic stance. And then she was hitting some balls. And of course, you're going to miss hit a lot of balls when you're first starting off. And jokingly, but not jokingly, I said to her, I said, okay, well, I want you to hit the ball hard in the air, hit it on a line, and don't hit it on the ground. I said, I, I want you to do anything but hit it on the ground, hit it hard on the line. She goes, why, dada? I said, because not even your mom is going to cheer for you when you hit it on the ground. I said, when, when have you ever been to a baseball game or anybody clap for a ground ball? <laughs> so I was guilty as anybody else of doing that. But I think that's a good conversation of like, if you're only doing front toss, are you potentially putting your player in a position to fail in a game if you're not challenging with velocity? I, I do think there's some truth to that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's one of those things too. Like, <laughs> we could use this as like an end of segment thing, uh, or I could throw it in the middle here, which I will do. Um, but I would say that's another one of those aha moments that I had, and that would be like a, a don't be that guy kind of moment again. <laughs> is you know having done this now for over 16 years i've seen so many people that i've been next to in in cages in multiple different locations in tons of different atmospheres and i would sit and watch you know i'm, I'm always kind of like watching around me just you know hearing different things picking up different things just trying to listen to like you know how people navigate what we do outside of what I hear myself doing. Um, and I would have these, these coaches next to me and I'd be like, man, like their kids just smash baseballs. Like this, this is like bang, bang, bang. I'm like, wow, man, this kid's, this kid's fire, you know? And you're looking at it in the moment, you know, I'd look at some of my kids during those, those times and those lessons and I'd look at my kids and I'm like, like, I'm just wearing these kids out. I'm like, this, this kid's just shooting balls the right side. He's late. He's sloppy. You know, he's fighting and he's battling his butt off. But like, he might barrel one out of every, like, barrel, barrel one out of every, like, six. But he's up there, like, stepping out, taking a breath. Like, all right, let's go, man. Like, I'm, let's go here. Eating in a lesson. And, yes. And it, it would be, like, a lot of times, like, you know, in the moment, I wasn't thinking about it. I was just like, all right, well, I got, I got to get this, I got to get this kid to understand how to, navigate this better like I've got to do a better job so he can feel better and the kid that I would have you know they'd come in after the weekend or whatever it was and be like oh yeah I went you know six for eight with you know four doubles I'm like oh nice you know and a lot of times the parents are like man like he just seems like he doesn't hit well in here but he goes up in the games and he just hits everything and I would hear a lot of times the, the kids in the cage next to me the parents are like oh man he he crushes it here in the cage, but every time he goes out in the game, he just, he just looks lost. You know what I mean? And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, part of that was, and I'm talking about kids, obviously at this point, like more like the high school age where I'm throwing harder too. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Like some of those coaches are just throwing like a nice easy BP. And at that age, like if you're, if you're a high school kid and somebody's throwing you easy BP and you're having a hard time being able to square the majority of the balls, like you've got some work to do ahead of you. You know what okay, I mean? So and, hold that thought for a second then. Because is this then a problem in the facility slash lesson structure where you're teaching for success in the lesson, wanting a kid, and there's nothing wrong with making a kid feel good about himself. Like, uh, I'm not saying that. Like, 
we want to have a positive influence on these kids. But that positive influence, I hope, comes from game success, not making them feel good for 30 minutes in the moment and sending them out the door with a false sense of security. Is that what you're getting at? A hundred percent. Yeah. Cause that's, that's, it was, you want them to come back, right? You want Johnny to be happy. So he well, keeps coming back I mean, for lessons. I think, I think, I think a lot of times too, it's like, you know, it's the kid, but it's also the parent. Like we you know when the, when the kid has a, a good lesson, which would be like, Oh, you know, my kid looked like he barreled a bunch of balls today. This is great. My, he must be getting better because he's barreling balls. Like we've done this long enough. Like if, if I wanted a kid to barrel a ball, I can throw it at the speed where the ball needs to be based off of what their swing is. Like, I'd be like, all right, this guy jumps a little bit yet. Let me just go a little bit lower with the ball, slow it down a little bit so he can catch it out front. Just let this guy pound balls all day so he can leave here and feel good about himself. But he's going to go in the game and get it. He's going to get blown up. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it becomes, becomes that like, you know, you're, and I've had to have this conversation with parents numerous times where like a kid will be in my lesson and he will just struggle. And it's not that he's struggling because he's not, moving well or that he's not even a good hitter it's once he gets to a point where he's being able to manage what i'm doing i have to go to the next step like if i'm throwing five six seven pitches on let's say i'm going fastball and i'm going at you know a decent speed maybe a little under game speed yet and they're bang 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 i'm not going to keep throwing that speed like i'm gonna be like all right you know if, if we're not doing a variance round where i'm throwing off speed and doing a bunch of other stuff it's gonna be like hey i'm gonna go faster and let's let's see what you got and if he sits there like for the first two or three figures out of timing and then feels comfortable again, and then it starts going bang, bang, bang. I have to go faster again. And it's like, all right, I got to go faster here because right now you're comfortable there. And at some point you're going to be uncomfortable in the game. And I would rather have you uncomfortable in here and failing in here. So you feel like the game is easier. And that's, you know, for all my kids, like it's one of the first conversations we have. I said, practice is going to be practice is going to be, physically and mentally draining a lot of times because I'm going to try to make this more difficult in a lot of ways than it is in the game so that you feel like the game is the easy fun part and in here is the work so you're not all of a sudden saying hey I've gotten to this point in my lessons and I feel comfortable and now the game's harder than my lesson well now I'm not going to do good in the game and at some point I'm going to translate that to I'm not practicing well or I'm not doing practice isn't going well enough or you're going to be the people that are like oh they hit he hits good in here but he can't hit in the game you know and they'll just be like oh well maybe the, maybe you just as a coach need to be there for him at the game <laughs> no i just i need to make i need to make this more difficult in here so i'm not yeah. coming to the game. i got something for you uh you've been doing a ton more lessons than i have and but i've noticed this in my weekend classes um i've always really wanted parents around during the lessons because obviously they're going to be with them more than we are. And I want them to learn alongside their child, but have you noticed, and maybe it's just me, but because of COVID and parents not coming in the building with their, with the student, I feel like our students have gotten way better and like they're just way more dialed in. Considerably still obviously look up to my father, like how my father views me matters to me. You know, like it matters that he sees that I've hopefully grown up to be something that he feels like he did what he wanted to do to raise me. So it matters to me that. And kids not being able to look at their parents or worry about, oh, I missed it, that ball. I wonder what my parents are going to say. I wonder, like, I'm really going to have a conversation in the car on the way home because I didn't hit the ball well enough today or I didn't throw well enough today. Like, 
oh, you know, hey, Johnny, you didn't you didn't throw enough strikes today. Like, what's going on? We got to really yeah. try to dial you in on strikes. When I'm sitting in the lesson going, listen, I don't care if you throw strikes today. Let's be a better mover today. And maybe next week we'll worry about being a good mover and throwing strikes and we'll blend it that way. But right now I need you to do this. And the parents sometimes, sometimes I think the parents still like look at the kid like they're supposed to be as good of an athlete as a big league player. Like they're supposed to throw strikes at that kind of level or they're supposed to be able to have that kind of body control in every single swing so they can square every single ball up, which is unrealistic. So I think that plays a part in it where, you know, kids just want to make their parents happy. Like they yeah, want that's to. That's what I was thinking. Like there's, there's anxiety with the parent being around and you're trying to plead that the focus goes from what am I trying to do to get better with this instructor? So I'm dialed in with those cues or whatever the task is to my focus is I'm trying to please my parents. So if you're a parent, like listening to this, that's, it's a lot to be said because I don't know, like nobody's doing that maliciously for their child. At least I hope not. I have had that a couple of times where I actually, it's been 10 years uh, or more that I actually had twice. I had to kick two parents out of lessons. Can't come in anymore. Can't get anywhere near the cage. You're actually holding back from me doing my job because you're like the the the, the hover parent. But no, that's very rare that happen. But still, the anxiety of trying to please a parent versus actually achieving a skill in a lesson. Well, and that's the same. But it's the same thing for for us as well, right? It's like there's a certain point where, again, this goes back to how this conversation started. There's a certain point where like when parents aren't seeing their kid in a setting where they're supposed to be getting better and learning and their kids struggling in that scenario, that it becomes like, Hey, is this the coach's fault? Like, is he just not being able to get my kid to do what he needs to do? So you still have that sometimes like, you know, obviously we've been this long enough now where I'm not doing this to, and I'll have a conversation with the parent. Like, listen, if we're struggling here, it's okay. Like your kid's going to be fine. Like just trust what's going on here but it goes the same way. It's like, you're going to get some certain coaches that are going to like want to slow the ball back down a little bit. So the kid can hit the ball. Well, so the parents can see the kid hitting well, so that they want to, you know, not maybe it might even be just so that the parent isn't going to be, you know, tougher on the kid in the car afterwards. And, you know, we're, and like you said, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm all high and mighty. There's times I've had to walk out of my son's soccer practice because he'll be doing something and he'll, you know, accomplish whatever task they're doing. And his first thing, his first thing is like this, like, dad, what do you think? And I'm like, go man, just do your thing. Like, yeah. I'm not here for that. And then there's, there's been times where I've instituted the best I can. And I say best I can, because I've obviously failed a little bit at this too, but I've instituted like a, a 12 and 24 hour, like no talk after games policy. Like when my son gets in the game, gets in the car after a game, it's not a me like, bro, why didn't you do this? And what, you know, you got to be more aggressive there. And, you know, what about this? And Hey, you know, whatever, because, you know, kids know when they didn't do well and they don't need, they don't need it. And it's hard because like, as a parent, we want to make sure that they're, they're learning. And sometimes our way of making sure that they're learning is to just tell them what's, what's, what's going on. And a lot of times they know, and then they just feel more defeated because they really were defeated or struggled in a game. Then they're getting it from the one person that, or the couple people that they look up to the most. 
And then it's like, now I've let down my team and I've let myself down and I've let you guys down. And now it's like, it becomes overwhelming for a lot of kids to have that just constantly put in them. So, you know, I've done the best I can, like when his games end to be like, Hey man, great job. Like, you know, you guys battled hard today as a team or whatever ends up being. And then like maybe the next day, if we're going to go out and kick a soccer ball or wherever else and do stuff, then we'll talk about, Hey, you know, in the game, there was that guy and you panicked, you just kicked the ball away. Like, got to work on some ball control there and try to work on being able to navigate getting around him or setting up for a pass versus just kicking in a random direction because you're worried about the guy taking it from you. And then we'll have that conversation then as we're practicing and it'll be like, all right, let's set this up. And that's given him some time to decompress where he's not worried about getting in the vehicle after the game with me. So, yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said for, for parents not being in, but there are, there are those couple kids that, probably act a fool a little bit more because they know that their parents are not watching. Now that's, it's definitely not the majority. That's, it's just a yeah, few exactly. kids that you're dealing with a lot more kids than I am. So I'm sure you have that. I haven't had that experience, but I, I could, I could see that happening with just a couple. Yeah. You're so, always right. right. And, and those are the ones that kind of goof around a little bit with their parents in there anyways, you know, and the parents are kind of like, come on, like stand back up. Why are you laying on the ground? <laughs> but, but then, but then, oh, I forgot but, about those days. I had, oh my God, I had this regular client 10 years ago. Great kid, too. He ended up playing college baseball, which was, was awesome. But when I first started lessons with him, it was an hour, like every Saturday or Sunday. And he would be one of those rolling around on the ground and they're like, come on, get up. And one time there was just a battle of wills. Like, you know, I'm not telling him to get up anymore. And he came in for an hour lesson. And he literally stood and looked at the clock for like 58 minutes. And I just let him. I stood there with my arms folded. It's like, I'm not giving in. I'm not giving in. And the lesson's over. He looks at the clock and goes, can I go now? I'm like, yep. <laughs> the parent knew it. It was like, I think they just wanted to get this kid out of their hair for an hour. But like, I'm not fighting him anymore. If he doesn't want to play. I, of course, I told him. I was like, this may not be the best investment for you. He's like, no, trust me. It's, but it ended up working out after it was probably him being seven or eight. He did it being a, a, a college baseball player, which is, which is awesome. But yeah, I remember those, remember those days. So I think back, like my parents were pretty hard on me. We came from a different era. I remember being locked out of the house on a day I'd go over. Uh, we had a, a back sliding door that you could see our batting cage from there. So it was basically, if I had an over day, I just had to hit until I could hear the door click unlocked. I could come back inside. If I made an error in a game, it was a hundred ground balls after the game. Like no questions asked. Mom was standing there at the edge of the dugout, bat on the shoulder, bucket in hand, hundred ground balls. If I made an error. See, my, so, mine, mine was slightly different there. Cause like my, my dad was also my coach through some of my youth. Um, some as a head coach, some as like an assistant coach to like little league and stuff like that. Um, he was always the more like, we're out here to have fun when we're playing games. Oh, not my house, man. No, but, <laughs> but if you're, but he was also, if you're, if you're not first, you're last in, in the stone house. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was like, if he, he was always like, if, if we're having fun, we're going to win. Now here's the thing. I mean, we, we won our little league championship with the, uh, if we're having fun, we're going to win. But on the other side of it, my dad has always been a, if you're going to do something, be the best, which means like hard work ethic. And it was, it wasn't like, Hey, I had a bad day. You got to go whatever. But 
it was it was mandatory that I take a hundred swings every day, whether they be just dry swings in the back. I mean, I didn't have a cage, but whether it be dry swings or whether it be me throwing the ball to myself or whatever it was, like it was like you're gonna you're gonna take a hundred swings today. You're gonna hit the tire a hundred times, whatever you're gonna do, you know, it's a hundred swings a day. And it wasn't again, it wasn't like a punishment based off of like how I did, but it was like you're gonna put in work if this is what you choose to do. Like, you know, you're not forced to play baseball. You choose to play baseball. If you're going to choose to do something, you need to do what you're doing because, you know, whatever. So, like, I, we did the work, but, like, game-wise, it was always, like – and, yeah, I mean, there would be times that would be, like, you'd be, like, what were you doing today? You know, like, what were you doing out there today? I'm, like, ah, yeah, I don't know. But – Yeah, if you're a parent out there, and it's probably goes without saying, uh, don't yell at your kid in the middle of the game. That doesn't help. <laughs> my dad had the loudest voice and I'd make an air and he'd yell at me to get my head out of my ass, which was slightly embarrassing. Just like, it, it wasn't good. Yeah. They weren't bad parents, by the way. They were just, they were just really hard on me in terms of sports, but it, it ended up working out because you know, it's kind of the same thing you were talking. Like you teach work ethic, you teach that if better is possible, then good is not good enough, you know? Yeah. But going, going back to it, honestly, I think, you know, there's a certain point that if parents are comfortable stepping away, if you are putting your kid in a learning environment, and if you're comfortable stepping away, honestly, now that we've gone through this, I would say step away. Like let your, let your kid navigate on his own. I've had kids, I would say the biggest difference for me since parents not being in there is kids talk considerably more. And I think a lot of times, like when I ask questions, they always kind of look at their parents like, what should I say? Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of, time, a lot of times when the kids walk happens. in. No, man, don't look at him. Look at me. I'm asking you the question. Well, and the kids walk in, you know, right when they're walking in the cage, I'm like, hey, what do you need today? And, you know, at that point, the kid and the parent are probably still standing close to, close to each other. And the kid's just coming in the cage. I'm just lifting up the cage for the kid to come in. I'm like, hey, how you doing? What do you need today? Like, what, what, what do you need for me today? Like, what do we got to do? And the kid will kind of turn back like, okay, well, my dad kind of wants me to do this because they've had that conversation or something like that. Or, you know, their coach, their coach from their team had told them something or told the parent something. And then the parent told the kid and then, or like, I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I think there's been a big difference in just kids being able to narrate what they're thinking, because I, I feel like they're not as worried about saying the wrong thing or, whatever and again it, it's not that it's the parents fault it's the kids because the kids look up to them so much as a kid man like your parents are your everything at that point you know what i mean like that's who supports you takes care of you it's who was is your first and you know biggest teacher like all that stuff and i think you know when your kid is ready or even sometimes before your kid is ready to be able to just pull pull back and like let them let them prove that they've been paying attention to everything that you've given them through their entire life so far to this point, I think is a huge, a huge thing. You know, I'd much rather have the parents at that point, I'd much rather have the parents text me, you know, after the lesson say, Hey, how do you do? You know, I want to be able to keep up some of the stuff you're doing. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't always remember everything you've done in the lessons and why you did it. And if you want to just give me a quick synopsis of what you guys did and what we need to focus on through something afterwards honestly is is much better you know i've told parents like have your kid bring in set up a camera if you want to set up a camera and just videotape the entire lesson and as a parent if you want to watch it back later then watch it back later like i don't mind like i've, I've got nothing 
I've got nothing to hide in here. Like, I doesn't yeah. matter. People always ask that. Do you mind if I film this? I'm like, no, I encourage you to film this. <laughs> this is your time, and I, I want you to learn along with it. Yeah. So I think that's a big. I think that's a big part too. Just kids being able to communicate better, and a lot of times they do that better that way. So we're going to get into our "Don't Be That Guy" segment of the day. What, what do you got? And I have one as well, but it's your segment, Travis. So I'll, I'll let you lead it off. Well, you heard the first oh "Don't Be." You heard the you heard the first kind of "Don't Be That Guy." Don't 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 make your kid feel always great in the cage, and then let them struggle in a game because they haven't been forced into that mode yet. Just just so you feel better as a coach that the kid hit well and felt well late leaving. Confidence is incredibly important. Not going to ever knock having confidence, but you got to be real. Like there's a difference between confidence in a cage and confidence in a game. Um, but the real don't be that guy, man, I swear, like I could, I could probably find this every single week at this point. Um, don't be that guy. So Hardy is probably going to sponsor this part of the segment. I'm still looking. I've been, producer Dan has been reaching out to Hardy's and Robinson for months now, trying to get them on board. I was like, just give me some free hot ham and cheese coupons. Christ's sake. Just, just even just like, give us a free whiff, just this free smell, what they smell like. Um, Don't be that guy. So if you're in your, if you're in your lesson and you've got a kid in your cage and this again, this, this happened this week and you're having to list off every athlete that you've taught and your every home run and every glory day thing that you did like there's a problem like don't be that guy this kid is already in your cage they're already ready to learn they don't need a 15 minute synopsis of everything you've accomplished in your career as a coach to believe in what you're doing if you think if you think that parents listed off their resume in the cage Yes. If you think oh, that if you think that parents, if you think that parents haven't done a little bit of research before they start dropping money to put somebody in a cage with you, meaning like either either somebody else that's a close friend of the family works with this coach, and they're like, hey, this guy's done wonders for our kid, and that family goes, we trust you, we know we've known you forever, we'll go to that coach, or if you've gone online and you're just searching for a coach, those parents have already looked at the resumes of the coaches on the site. They know who they're putting their kid with. And when that kid's in your cage, if you have to list how good you were as a player, that's, that's not a, that's not a good thing. Don't, don't be that guy. You remember when we were teaching in this one facility and I don't know the guy's name, but he worked in pro ball and he would bring a boom box in with him and he would just like yell and dance and say, at a boy. And that was like, that was the lesson. It would be so loud, like you couldn't even teach. Next thing is the boom. Like, like, dude, can you turn the music down? I'm actually trying to teach over here. I don't know what I was thinking of there. That's uh, just coming in because of the resume and not actually teaching anything. Yeah. For me, my don't be that guy this week is don't be unvulnerable, if that's even a word. But here's where I'm going with that. The idea that it's okay not to know something is what drives me as a coach to want to get better. And saying that it's okay to say, I don't know everything, but I'll either learn it or I'll get back to you, or huh, I haven't thought of it that way. It's okay to say that as a coach. In, in, in reality, to me, that's what makes the best coaches really good is that quest for always wanting to get better, 
knowing that there is still improvement that could be made. And when you get to the point as a coach, and this is cliche-ish, and we've said it a number of times, but it's worth repeating. When you get to the point of the, as a coach where you think you're good enough, you shouldn't be coaching anymore. Or you think that I've had enough experience that I know the way, there's still a better way, right? So don't be the guy that is set in the ways of, you know, I've done enough I, and I, I know what it takes to get there. Therefore, I don't want to open my ears or mind to anything else that could possibly make you better. And the reason that happens, one, is fear. Fear is a big preventative measure for good coaches. The fear of I'm going to have to work a little harder to learn something new. Fear of I'm not comfortable with this because I don't know a lot about it because I haven't been exposed to it before. And it's easier to put your hands up and say no for whatever reason, uh, usually all negative reasons, versus saying, huh, let me explore this a little more. To me, that's what separates the good coaches from the loud ones. And don't be that guy. Well, I'm afraid every day, so. <laughs> every day. Every day. I'm like, man, I didn't do enough. I'm excited today. I've got a player that has flown in for the next three days, and we're going to, in about five minutes, I'm going to head over to the facility and get after it. It's awesome, man. Never gets old. Every day, every day is a new, every day is a new process. It's a new learning. It's a new plan. It's a new everything. So yeah, yeah. Lucky, lucky to have, lucky to have the jobs we have. No doubt. We make a living on it. I, I know it's, this, we've said this before too. And I get this question at every conference we go to, how do I get to the point where I can make a living in baseball? And I'll say the answer that I always say, work about three, start off working about 350 days a year for averaging 10 hours a day. I'd say averaging 10 hours a day for about $30,000 a year. And if you can withstand that for a while, you can make it in baseball because opportunities will arise, but you got to put your time in, man. And you can put a lot of time in for not very much money. I was getting ripped off then because I was only making like 17 for a while. My first job, I, I, I said I made $16,000 as a full-time division one coach. That's no, it's true, though, but, that, but that's a really good point, though, before we shut this one down. That's a really good point. I think that you, we should probably even talk about more because we, we get a lot of people that are wanting to do. Yeah, we, we should do a segment on that. That, that could be a, a future show of just kind of the steps involved. Yeah, I mean, just and, stories along the way. And what to do if you're looking to do it or what, what, what it is, like even if you're a parent trying to navigate, trying to better help your kid at home outside of, you know, even what we do, or if you're not able to get your kid in, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, whether it be COVID or financially to have someone assist your kid, like what steps you could take at home to, to better navigate that too. So yep. awesome. True that. All right, Party. Parties. <laughs> Parties. Don't be that guy. <laughs>